Genesis. We're going through the whole Bible, the major themes of the Bible, in a year. And because we're doing 40 different topics, that leaves a little bit of room for holidays and guest speakers, and we are getting some of those lined up too, um, guest speakers. And so we talked about, and again, this narrative of the Bible is important for you and me because we find ourselves in the story. Did you hear me? We find ourselves in the story of the Bible. God created Adam and Eve. They, he said that they were good. And then they get tempted. And, and we read in Romans chapter 5 that Adam sins. Notice it doesn't say the woman sinned at all. And it says the, that Adam sinned. He made a choice to act independently, to, to, to not trust God. And it caused horrendous things to happen that affected all of their children throughout and down through history to us. And so we have this legacy of where we have this, this tendency in us to not do the right thing. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Anybody relate to that? Anybody besides me? <laughs> Yeah, we do. And so this story, we're, as we're talking, going through the narrative of the Old Testament right now, it's, it really relates to you and me where we live. So we moved on from there. We, there's a lot of areas we don't cover because it's exhaustive, and we could preach easily the whole year just on the book of Genesis. But we're moving forward today, and we're going to talk about what happened after Adam and Eve made that bad choice in the garden and um, they, had, they were, had to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. And what happened next? And so we've got some slides that I'm going to be following to help us. I'm going to be asking you guys questions. And so I encourage you, throw out your answers, okay? We're not looking for perfect answers. We're just looking for what you, what you think. And, uh, and it's going to help us as we process together. So... I want to first ask you, when Adam and Eve now, apart from God, and left to our own devices as human beings, what happens to humans? What do humans do morally? Yeah, exactly. Like Terry said, they start going down the drain. They really do. And um, when you see people around you in our community that don't know the Lord, you look at their marriages, you look at their children, you look at their lives, you look at the way they work in their jobs, when they don't have Jesus in their lives, it is a battle, it is a struggle. There is, when we look at our society, we see them out of divorce, we see the amount of, um, of uh, kids that are abandoned, people that are dealing with abuse, and people that are dealing with um, a neglect and abandonment, so many things, and, and God is... God immediately, as soon as this starts to happen, begins to act to bring us back to Him. That's why it's such an important part of the story that we see not only God bringing judgment to sin, but bringing redemption or buying us back and saving us from ourselves. Some of us have watched movies like Divergent and Hunger Games. And that is a really good picture of what society looks like. Waterworld, if you're older. What a society degenerates into without God. But then there's a guy named Noah comes along. But before Noah, so what's the first, one, is, one of the first things that happens after um, 
Adam and Eve is that they have kids, right? And they have two boys. What are their names? Cain and Abel. And what happens to Abel? Cain murders him. So we have the first murder in the Bible. And then shortly after that, we read about a guy named Lamech, and he's even worse than Cain. And then it just gets worse and worse, and we're going to read the scripture about this in just a minute. But, it, but God finally reaches to a guy named Noah, and Noah is willing to obey God, and because of that, God makes Noah part of a plan to do two things. One is to judge the sin of the world, the majority of the world, but to save that family that has been um, walking in s- with the Lord and seeking the Lord. So, interesting thing about Noah, and you go ahead and put up the chart, Dale, is that look who was alive when Noah was alive. If you see Noah, he's right in the middle. He lived 950 years. But three-quarters of the way or, or two-thirds of the way through his life, his father's still alive. His grandfather's still alive, Methuselah. And even, um, well, I guess not to be, I guess uh, Enoch had just been translated before that. But, but his great-great-grandfather and his great-great-great-grandfather, almost all the way back to, actually, you could see Adam was still alive when Noah was a young man. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's because the lifespans were so long at that point, and we can't go into the science of it right now. That's a fascinating study in itself. But I believe that, that Noah, we read, walked with the Lord and sought the Lord, and I believe that probably his grandparents, all the way back ten generations, had a great influence on his life. So God, we reached a point where earth is so full of corruption and wickedness and violence that God decides, I've got to act. I've got to do something. And um, God needed to judge sin. It's gotten so bad. We read this concept of God waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally when it gets to a certain point, He acts and brings judgment. We see this in a number of places in the Bible. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18. I mean, it gets to the point where how many righteous people are left in Sodom when God finally brings judgment? Yeah, less than 10. It actually turns out to be Lot. And we don't even know his wife even turned back. So Lot and his two daughters, that's about it. And then in the situation uh, later in uh, Genesis with Abraham, God tells Abraham, the Amorites that are living in the promised land, he says, he says they're, they're really starting to, to really be wicked. But he says, they haven't reached the point where I've got to judge them yet. And God waited 400 more years. That's quite a few generations. That's in Genesis 15, verse 16. So a question I have for you is, when is judgment necessary? When does God finally judge? You don't necessarily give an answer to that. And why is judgment so hard for God? Why does God wait? Why does He delay? You ever thought about that? Somebody could throw out an answer for that one. Why does God wait? Yeah, He's patient. What else? Yeah, he's, He has compassion. He wants to give people room to turn back to Him. And we're going to see more of that as we go along. 
You know, we really as humans struggle with this, this whole idea of judgment. And we're so quick to think that God is, is just mean and that he wants, to, he wants to destroy people, but he doesn't. We read in Second Peter, and I'm going to bring this out later, that he's so compassionate. He, he waits because he wants, doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to know and walk with him. There's a, some of you remember Sesame Street, Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog is one of my favorite people. And uh, Kermit the Frog, uh, there's a lot of memes out there, and they use Kermit. Uh, he should probably sue them. But there are memes on Facebook where Kermit is saying things, and one of the things that, a couple things that he says that I saw is, I didn't know you had the authority to judge me. Is Jesus hiring? And another one was, uh, love me, but don't judge me. How many of you have heard something like that before? Love me, but don't judge me. You know, but I want to ask you, is that what you would want in a friend? Somebody that wouldn't be honest with you when they see that you, you've got an issue you need to deal with? Or do you want a friend who actually loves you enough to tell you the truth? Even if it's painful. Proverbs says, uh, you know, it talks about iron sharpens iron, and a guy that really is his friend is going to, you know, faithful, better are the kisses of, a, of an enemy than the, I mean, the f- better is a, a, I'm really getting my verses mixed up in Proverbs. Better are, is the wounds of a, of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Or the wounds of an enemy than the kisses of a friend. So what kind of friend would you rather be? Would you rather be someone that tells the truth to people, to another friend, even though it hurts? Or would you rather be somebody that just tells people what they want to hear? I mean, we all, none of us like to confront, do we? We like comfort. But I really believe God's calling us to, to do what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, to tell, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So there's two things there. There's speaking the truth, but doing it in a loving way. Nobody wants you to tell them the truth when you're angry at them. But when they know you really care, it's a lot easier to hear. So do we as believers, as Christians, do we also face God's judgment? You know, it's a yes or no answer. We don't because we don't face judgment in the sense of our sins having to having to face going to hell or because God has forgiven and taken our sins from us in Jesus. When we trusted Jesus to be our sacrifice, God removes our sins. As far as the east is from the, the west, Psalm 103 says, so far as he taken removed our sins from us. But we do face a different kind of judgment in our lives. There's and there's there's so there's basically three kinds. I just told you the first kind. The next two are the really ones I want to look at for a moment. Two kinds of judgment. First um, Peter four verse seventeen tells us that judgment starts in the house of God. You ever thought about that? But what kind of judgment is Peter talking about? Is he talking about uh, judgment in the sense of condemnation? No, he's not. He's talking about God bringing cleansing, God bringing discipline to his people to mature his people and help his people grow up in him. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about um, the fact that if we don't listen to God and when we reject him when he comes to us to discipline us, that we can actually end up separated from God. That's a scary thing. 
And so when God is speaking to you and trying to get your attention and saying, hey, there's an attitude, there's an action, there's words you've been using, whatever it is, there's a relationship you need to pay attention to. We need to pay attention to that. We need to let God help us move forward and grow up in Him. If we don't, we will end up possibly being alone and separated from God. Hebrews 10 talks about that in detail. I encourage you to read that. Well, let's look at this other, the verb, um, the kind of judgment that talks about this discipline of the Lord. That's in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that if, if you are God's child, then He's going to be a good daddy. He's going to be a good father, and He's going to discipline you so that you grow up and He trains you to go the right way. I used to um, uh, grow fruit trees, and I would do the kind where you would make the branches, you know, tie them to wires, and they would make these beautiful tree sculptures called espalier uh, trees. And, and the whole idea was to train the tree to go where you wanted it to go. In Hebrews 12, it talks about God being a father that wants to train us, and it says that the fruit of that or the, the result of that is going to be the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. And so God... Judgment, when judgment starts in the house of God, he's talking about God helping us grow up to, go th- to follow his paths, follow his ways, and to also be a people that he can use to bring others to himself. The second kind of judgment here, or the third kind, because I actually talked about one previously, is a word that basically means to destroy, to eradicate. And this is what's going to happen in Genesis, with most of the world's population. In Revelation 21.8, we read this. It says that the Lord throws the serpent, or the dragon, and the false prophet and the beast, throws them in a lake of fire for eternity. That's a pretty severe judgment. And it says that he also will throw into that fire all those that have rejected God all the way down to the end. And really, that's because they've chosen that destination by rejecting God and everything he stands for. So the question I have for you, if, if I fall away from God and start to live and act selfishly, what is God going to do? Pardon? Yeah, he's going to be patient. He's going to wait, wait for you. He's also going to start allowing things to come into your life to try to get your attention. He's going to want to be... He wants to bring discipline and speak to those areas that are hurting you, that are causing you to go in a way that's going to end up destroying the things you love, the people you love, and yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about this right after communion. He talks about, he says that, that God will start out by disciplining us. And the reason he does that is so we will not perish with the world in judgment. So we really need to listen to God. But he'll always start out by working with us where we're at, and he is patient. But his patience does not go on forever. There's a point where God will go, all right, if you're not going to listen, then I will bring out the two-by-four, whatever it is, and deal with this to get our attention. And I've had to have that happen to me a few times in my life. So not happy memories. But I was so thankful that God did that in my life because it showed me that God really loved me. 
He was more interested in my character than my comfort there. So, is God just and, mer- just and merciful? Yes, He is. Imagine somebody broke into your home and they trashed your house and they even beat up your kids and they got caught by the police. And so you all went to court and the, and the guy stands before the judge and the judge says, hey, you know, it's obvious you did all these things. You got caught red-handed. But he says, I'm such a loving and merciful guy. I'm just going to let you go. And you're the homeowner and the parent. What would you say? Exactly. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Because justice was not served. We want both, don't we? We want justice when we've been wronged especially. But we also want mercy. And uh, in that situation, if you don't get justice there, the judge is not, is not a just judge. He's not a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. We read in the Psalms that, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So we need to realize that when God brings justice, it's not that he's not merciful. It's that there is a point where he's got to bring justice or he would not be a righteous God. So anyway, let's look at see how society developed after Adam and Eve. And so we talked about Abel murdered Cain, and everybody kind of went a downhill spiral. In Genesis 6, I want to read a couple of verses. Verses 5 through 7. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. This is New Living Translation. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race that I created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. Do you catch God's heart here? His heart is broken. The creation that he created has made choices and has has followed the way of the wicked one. And there's so much more we could go in here with Genesis 6 talking about the influence of the demonic and the fallen angels and stuff. I'm not going to get into that this morning. It would take another three hours. But I want you to not miss God's heart for His creation. God loves His creation and His heart was broken when they abandoned Him. And He was left with one family that was faithful. So let's take a look at God's plan to recover humanity through that one family. And I'm going to point out three different things and, and three things that Jesus also uh, connects to here. First of all, God found a righteous man and you, who built a huge boat. In Genesis 6, verse 9, we read, Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless person living on earth at the time. Isn't that crazy? The only, the last one. Maybe his wife was included in that. And it says he walked in close fellowship with God. Wow. Now, anybody remember how big the boat is, just for fun? The NLT translates this into feet instead of cubits. 
450, I think, 450 feet. That's a football field is how many feet? 300 feet. So it's a it's a, it's one and a half football fields long, and about I think it was like about 75 feet wide or 100 feet wide. It was a big, and it had decks and decks. And if all the animals came in, you know, as little animals, as babies or whatever, you can get just about every representative from every species on a boat that big. So that's another fun story, to uh, rabbit trail to pursue. But notice here, God saves his world using a boat, using an ark. And he saves, he saves the ones who are faithful to him through the flood of judgment. Now you start to pick up some of the analogies here that we call types and shadows. Jesus talks about this ark story. He said it's also a picture of God saving his people from sin through Christ. In a sense, Jesus is our ark. Ever thought of that? Jesus is our lifeboat, saving our lives. Not cool. Through the waters of judgment, by our, by His death on the cross for us, when we put our faith in Him, it says we become in Christ. In a sense, we are now in the lifeboat, which is Jesus. This is dramatized actually in our water baptism, something we hardly ever talk about. Uh, Peter talks about this in First Peter three. Verses 20 through 21. God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water was a picture of baptism. Which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. So do you look at your baptism that way? Emily here was just baptized last month with her, her uh, friend uh, uh, Jaden. And um, we talked a lot about baptism, but I don't think I talked at all about it being like Noah, saving, God saving people through Noah's Ark, did I? But um, that's, that's what the Bible says. So this morning, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you see your baptism like that? That Jesus is saving you from judgment as you're in Him, and you're in the midst of the water, like when you're baptized, you're put down in the water. We use the grave and the resurrection analogy a lot, but we don't talk about it being like being in Christ in an ark, in a lifeboat, being saved through the waters of judgment. Wow, crazy, huh? The second thing that I want to mention is that God saved Noah and his family out of a violent, godless culture that perished in the flood. And... um, to understand that God wanted to save more, but those the people that he saved were the only ones who were willing to come to him. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter talks a lot about the flood. He says, God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Noah warned the world around him. God tried to save more. 
through Noah. But he ended up with only those that he saved. I've had pastors that said, I feel like such a failure. There's nobody getting saved in our church. And I said, well, are you better than Noah? He only saved his family. (laughs) That kind of helps bring perspective sometimes. Okay, listen to this. Jesus talks about this. And he talks about Noah and the flood in relationship to his second coming, which hasn't happened yet. Matthew 24, starting in verse 37, he says, When the Son of Man returns... It'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be. When the Son of Man comes. Now that is a sobering couple verses. He says that we're going to see a repeat of the circumstances that happened in Noah's day. There were three things mentioned that the people were doing. Right? Banquets, parties, and weddings in my translation. Now aren't aren't those wicked, horrible things? Banquets, parties, and weddings. Are they? No! What makes these banquets, partings, and weddings bad in God's eyes? Pardon? Yeah. Yeah. They were living their lives doing all these things as if God didn't even exist. They were doing it for them. They didn't care about God. And when you add that into that, that Noah was warning them, telling them, unless they turn to God, they're going to be swept away. You've got to remember, it never had even rained on earth up to this point. The earth was watered from the ground, we read. And, and so these people, Noah's saying, uh, Noah's building a boat when there's never been wa- a flood, and it's never rained. God asked Noah to do something pretty crazy in the eyes of all these people. And uh, God saw their hearts, that they did not care. And that is going to be the way it's going to be at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Now, I don't know, you know, proportionately, is it going to be the same percentage of people that are swept away when Christ returns? But we know there'll be a heck of a lot more people saved, right? And we have the opportunity to tell people good news so they will be in Christ when He comes back. They will be in the boat. One day our world's going to be judged again by God. He's being patient, though. He's being patient. It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven, and we've been waiting for him to come back. His disciples thought he'd be back within 100 years, easily, in their lifetime. We read in Second Peter again, in verse chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for our sake or for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Again, repent, kind of a Bible word that we don't necessarily use a whole lot, means to change your mind and your direction, to turn from something and turn to God. Change the way you think. To say, I need to start walking with the Lord. I need Jesus in my life. I need to, re- 
I need to surrender to Him. God is too good to be indifferent to the evil going on in our world. Human trafficking, violence. I mean, all you got to do is look on the internet and you see what I'm talking about. But He provides His people with a way of escape, doesn't He? Some of us have worried about what am I going to do if I end up finding out I'm in the tribulation. And there are many, many people, um, and I'm not sure where I land on that as far as whether Jesus is going to save us through the rapture before or in the middle of or at the end of the tribulation period that we read about with the Antichrist being revealed in the earth and all that. But the promises of Scripture are very clear that God will carry His people through whatever they've got to face. Listen to these two verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, Paul says, God has not appointed us to receive His wrath. And when, he, when the tribulation comes, it's God pouring out His wrath, His judgments on the earth. God has not appointed us to receive His wrath, but to receive His salvation through Jesus. Does that mean that no Christians are going to die? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that no matter what happens to us, we're going to be saved with God forever. In heaven and then on a recreated earth. Forever. 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter really has a lot to say about this. The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials. Even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the final day of final judgment. Peter's saying there that no matter what comes, when God is bringing judgment on the earth, He's still going to care for His people. We don't need to live in fear of what is coming. We need to trust God and listen to Him and be close to Him so that when that day comes, it's not going to take us by surprise. And that's something else that both Paul and Jesus tell us. Don't let that day take you by surprise. Be walking close to God and close to one another. So a, a question that a lot of people ask, well, are we going to be saved from the tribulation or are we going to be saved through the tribulation? You see the difference? Are we going to be, uh, is our ark going to be taken off of earth before the flood comes? Or is our ark going to go through the waters of the tribulation but float on top of them? That's a good argument, isn't it, Jay, for post-tribulation rapture? Carried through. What's that? Same day. <laughs> All right. Third thing, um, what I call the rainbow connection. In Genesis 9, after the flood is over and the rain subsides, and, at, and uh, Noah and his family get out of the ark, his three boys, their, their wives and his wife, and um, they start living on the earth again, but starting out fresh with the animals that were on the ark and so on. It says, the Lord says, um, he makes a promise to Noah. He says, I'm, I'm going to confirm a covenant with you or an agreement with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all the creatures, living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Never again. And then God said, I'm going to give you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I'm going to put my rainbow in the clouds or in the sky. I, th I was thinking last night, rainbow, 
What does a rainbow mean? Or what did it mean to Noah and his family? I thought about it. You know what it means? It's a sign that God's judgment is over, that's been satisfied. It's a sign to those who belong to God that they're safe and they can move forward into their future in fellowship with the Lord. You ever thought about a rainbow meaning that? It's interesting. Jesus made a covenant with us in the New Testament, didn't he? And at that Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and he takes the bread, passes it out, eat this, drink that. And then he says, these things, and he's lifting up the elements, the, the bread and the wine. He says, these are a sign of a covenant or an agreement that I'm making with you. And what does that agreement mean? It means that I'm going to take care of the issue of God's wrath. I'm going to satisfy God's wrath, taking it on myself. And these symbols that you take when you take communion are a sign to you that you are not under God's wrath and never will be again. And that God's judgment has been satisfied by the death of Jesus and that you now can live in relationship with Him. You see the similarities between communion and the rainbow? Isn't that amazing? I had never seen that until just this week. Wow, pretty crazy thing. As we get ready to close here now, I want to ask you, do you know somebody that needs to get in the ark of Jesus? Do you know somebody that needs a lifeboat? You know, somebody who's perishing and is going to perish when judgment comes that you can share the good news with that there is a lifeboat available for them to get into and his name is Jesus. You ever thought of the gospel that way? You guys like a lot of deer with head on headlights this morning, kind of looking at me like, what is our preacher talking about? I've never heard anything like this before. But it's in the Bible. I want to stop and I just want to ask you, turn to the people you're with and think of a person that you guys can pray for who needs Jesus, who needs to be saved from the judgment that is going to come. Jesus said that it's going to be like the days of Noah and that is going to be a horrendous, horrendous day, a day of devastation, a day of darkness, Joel talks about. Can you think of somebody that you could pray for that needs to know Jesus this morning? I'm going to close in prayer. Then I want you, before you go, just to turn to your spouse or your friend and just pray for somebody by name that needs Jesus, needs to be in that lifeboat with us. So, God, I thank you this morning for your word. We're learning all kinds of amazing things out of Genesis. And I just thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching me and teaching our our, our community here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to think of and pray for and share good news with people who need you. So even now as we turn and pray for people by name to know you, I pray that you would answer those prayers. Soften hearts, draw them to you. We know that your heart is that none would perish, Lord. So we cry out for those people on your heart. I pray, um, I pray for my birth dad that you would turn his heart to you, you would soften it and that he would be saved along with my brother, two of my brothers.
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and pray with your friend, or if, you don't, if you're all by yourself, just name that person before the Lord and pray with them. And then before you go, I want you to remind you to do the devotions. If you have the app, use the app on the Bible Engagement Project. It's got a devotion for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They take about five minutes a day to do. They're really easy. If you need help finding them, be glad to help you. Lola knows how to do it. <laughs> She'll show you. Some of our other leaders know how to do that. And, uh, but I want to encourage you, if you don't have a, a, an, of a, a smartphone, take one of the paper copies and you'll have that. You can do your devotion. So go ahead and pray, and then you're dismissed. And have a wonderful afternoon.